This podcast is brought to you by FormKeep. Form endpoints for designers and developers. No iframes, JavaScript embeds, or CSS overrides. Try out our sandbox mode before you buy at formkeep.com. I like that we had off by one errors in our sound check. <laughs> this is a great start. <laughs> Hi, Sean. Hi, Derek. Hi, Hi Sean. Hi, Derek. Hi, Hi Katrina. Katrina. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, we're joined awesome. by Katrina Owen of Exorcism.io fame and uh, refactoring talk extraordinaire. I have like so many refactoring talks at this point, and I'll wake up in the morning and think, oh, I have a new idea for an, another refactoring talk. <laughs> it's going to be epic. <laughs> Today, we're going to refactor a controller. <laughs> no, I'm done with that one. Okay. I mean, it is definitely the most relevant topic to, to most programmers. Like, we spend not as much time as we could refactoring, but I think everybody wants to spend more. I think there's a huge uh, myth about refactoring. I'm, okay, so I'll do a refactoring talk, and it'll be about the techniques, the how do you actually do it. And then after the talk, people will have one of two questions. How do you know where to begin that's a really common one. The other one is, how do you get your manager to let you refactor? <laughs> and this is one of my favorites because there's clearly, like, I want to beg the question. You don't. But you also don't stop and then do refactoring for three months. It's something right. that you do all the time, but not all the time, you know? Right. I mean, you refactor until solving whatever problem you're trying to solve is easy, and then you solve the problem. There you go. Kent Beck, my favorite quote by Kent Beck, is actually from a tweet, not one of his amazing books. He said, make the change easy, warning, this may be hard, then make the easy change. And it's so good. Right. Yeah. We get, the, we get that question of, like, how do you let your manager, how do you get your manager to do this a lot? Because, like... People will hire us to do team augmentation stuff, and oftentimes it's when the code base is in a poor state. Yes, right? but usually you don't get to see it when it's great, because right. why would they bring <laughs> Why would they bring us on? Yeah. Um, so I'll go in, and I'll start, like, I'll start with a refat. Well, I'll, you know, quick, I get a ticket, just like anybody else gets a ticket, and yeah. it's like, we need this. And I look at it, and I'm like, all right, well, I do the same kind of process, where it's like, well, to make this change the way I want to make it, <laughs> these three things have to be true. Yep. And they're not right now, so I'll yeah. take those on one by one. And sometimes it takes a, takes a long time because it's hard. Yeah. And they'll ask, like, oh, they'll, they'll say, like, that's fine for you because we brought you in here specifically to do this. And it's like, mm -hmm. well, you wouldn't have had to bring me in here specifically to do this if you all did this, too. And they'll be like, yeah. well, how do I get permission? Yeah. And my response is always, like, you, you don't. Like, yeah. you, you are the professional and you decide how your job should be done. Like, they can tell you what they'd like you to do. Yep. But at the end of the day, you have to be happy with the work you're producing and you have to be satisfied that it meets your standards as well. And if you're being asked to not meet your own standards, like that's a terrible environment to work in. Yeah, there's a common analogy. People say that, well, what would happen if surgeons asked their manager if it was okay to wash their hands? <laughs> like, <bad idea>. <laughs> I hadn't heard that. That's a good one. Your professional job. <laughs> you're the professional here. You know what needs to be done to do your job right. 
Right. I mean, I think it harkens back. There, there was a great keynote on the first day of the conference um, where he made some comparisons between software developers and looking at Henry Ford and his assembly line workers versus mm-hmm. uh, the, the engineers that were responsible for designing planes. And his point was that engineers are uh, software engineers are much uh, are much closer to the latter, and uh, we shouldn't try to put ourselves into the very mechanical sort of uh, processes that have you just turn your brains off, and that. I think in many ways is, is the process you can get into if you just focus on implementing the next feature over and over again and never focusing on the bigger picture of your code base. But I wanted to be a cog. What are you saying? <laughs> <laughs> I can't be a cog. <laughs> Sarah May did a phenomenal talk uh, at a conference I was re- at recently where she looks at the experience of a team developing software and compares it to different other types of teams and looks at, is this a good metaphor for team uh, work in software development right. and she was looking at the common idea of like it's a factory it's Henry Ford you're right. measuring output widgets and um, she compared it also to the sort of artisan craftsman you have uh, a workshop with some masters and journeymen and apprentices and you're doing quality work and how does that compare and then she compared it also to a stage with actors and directors and uh, all of the people involved in creating an experience and it was a really good interesting useful metaphor because now suddenly that group of people, you bring one person in, that person has whatever skill sets they have, and that affects the outcome dramatically. And you might not see them on stage a lot, but the fact that they are there brings enormous amount of value to the team. Yeah. Although if you're in San Francisco, I feel like they, they prefer the, the, the metaphor that lets them use the word artisanal a lot. <laughs> I know. It's a good word. Seriously, more buzzwords, please. No, I mean, I, I think that it's difficult to find metaphors for how we do work because the, the process that goes into creating software is very unique compared to other industries. I wonder, like, I, we have this search for metaphors, right? And for a long time, it was building a house. I feel like that's what software, like, you lay the foundation and then you do this and then you, like, people would, people would draw that metaphor. Um, and even, like, to tools, right? Like, what's, you know, having the right tools and things like that. And now we've moved on to other metaphors and people are searching, you know, you, we, you just gave the example of uh, Sarah's talk with several different metaphors in it. And I wonder if people in other fields do the same thing. Like, are we just searching for metaphors because we don't quite understand what it is we're doing ourselves? Yeah. Or is it because we think that other people don't understand it? Or do other, like, are carpenters trying to draw metaphors about dry, like building a house? Or are bridge builders drawing metaphors? Like, they're doing engineering as well. I mean, I think it comes from the youth of, of the industry. Uh, in in a lot of ways, like we've had less time to figure out exactly what the right way to do our jobs are. And clearly we're not doing our jobs right most of the time because most projects seem to fail. Right. So yes, we've had it that. Seems to, like we, maybe we haven't figured it yeah, out. Yeah, we haven't figured it out. Right. Yeah. So I think maybe that maybe that maybe I'm answering yeah, you're answering my question by being like, yeah, we haven't figured this out yet. So yeah. we're searching for something that will searching let us explain away why we haven't figured it out yet. Like or help us figure it out. Yeah. I feel like there's also an, a danger of, like, not invented here. Like, we have to figure it out on our own from first principles because we're engineers or whatever. And uh, it seems like maybe we could go to other industries and actually learn about some of these things. And probably people are doing that. I've just not been paying attention. <laughs> I think that was a, the original intent behind the term software engineer mm-hmm. was to sort of impress upon developers at the time the importance of, of what was going on and looking at the rigors that uh, other forms of engineering go through and because we are it, software is becoming a thing where it if we introduce 
you know, the, the, just the right bug, we can destroy people's lives. Oh, yeah. Um, and I don't, I don't know that people necessarily take a lot, enough responsibility for that in a lot of cases. In, 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 uh, not, not in that, like, after it occurs that there should be yeah. somebody, uh, but, but more taking the possibility of that yeah. uh, seriously in the development of software. But I also think that it leads to, uh, it, that is where if we're going to, I think if we're going to look at how, how to develop software correctly, other engineering fields are probably the, where, where we'll see the most parallels. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> Oftentimes, we'll be working with the client, and they'll say something like, how long do you think X will take? And like when X is small enough, I can give them a reasonably certain, like, oh, it'll probably take me a day, mm. right? Or, uh, but as that number goes further out, there's, there's more uncertainty in it. Yeah. And, and a, lot of people have, a lot of people who aren't in the industry have a hard time understanding that. Like to them, it's like, well, I had a house built, and they could tell me down to you know, down plus or minus a week over six months when it was going to be done. I was like, yeah. well, yes, and I don't have a good answer for you as to why we can't do that. We just can't. Like, <laughs> well, I wonder if it's about the uncertainty. I think that the biggest value that we provide is solving something that hasn't, I mean, if, if you know how long it's going to take, it's because you've done it before or something very, very similar, maybe many times. The value doesn't seem to be as high if you've done it a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Whereas if there is uncertainty, that's kind of where the biggest risk and the biggest wins might be. I think one other thing that's interesting about software is when we do have a problem that we find ourselves solving or a thing that we find ourselves building over and over again, we have the ability to kind of package up the, the out-of-the-box solution in a, way, in a way that, I mean, to a certain extent, you can, you can kind of do something similar-ish with houses, but not, not to the level that we can with software of just have a thing that, that is out-of-the-box solving, like blogs, for example. Yeah, right. and house generally solves the same problem for most people. Right. So. It also, like, I, f- I feel like taking that long view of, like, well, where, like, how, you know, can you, when is this whole project going to be done ignores some of the value we have as software developers in that we're not building a real thing like we're not building a physical good so we can we can very quickly change almost everything about it right yeah. so the the projects that i've been on that have been the most successful have been with people who are totally open to the iterative process of software development mm-hmm. where you start and you're like oh we thought we were building x but we're really building mm-hmm. y and that's better right well, keynote today was great it was about this whole thing of like no a lot of people think design starts at when you start the visual design and no there's this huge phase before of discovering what the problem actually is about and who is experiencing pain and what is that pain and how might you solve it and it that exploration is um important and expensive and it takes time and it's hard to do right and it's hard to do well and it involves squishy things like feelings like <laughs> i don't know i think that we tend to jump in too quickly sometimes i mean I, I definitely think that the projects that i always felt really good about as successes um when i was at thoughtbot were the, the projects where we uh would do our our product design sprint at the beginning mm-hmm. and determine we're actually not building the right thing and mm-hmm. ended it right there yeah. because we avoided the expensive process of building the wrong thing and discovering yeah. way too late that it's not the right thing yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. So I, did no, it, I did it wrong with exorcism, by the way. I'm doing a talk about all the things I did wrong, and I don't even have time for all the things I'm, I did wrong with exorcism in the past three years. I've, like, picked ten. So let's talk about exorcism then for a second. Okay. So, like, for people who don't know, and I think most of the people who listen to our podcast are probably familiar with exorcism, but, like, you can go on and pull down exercises and do them in, I mean, you must be up to 
20 languages by now at least 29 i have like if you can come and contribute to crystal we'll be at 30 <laughs> wow so 30 languages it's the same exercises across la- across languages right for the a most part a lot of overlap yeah okay cuz I, I remember the doing... easiest way to come and contribute to crystal is to come find exercises in another language and translate them it's awesome right and then like the cool thing so like you can just get some like here's some problems you can try and solve with this language that you're just learning right and yeah. then you get feedback on them from other people who are also going through this process yeah. or maybe know that language already, they can go back, they can go in and like give you a code review on them. Basically. Yeah. And the, the, the thing that exorcism does differently from a lot of the other side, well, three things I think mainly that exorcism does differently is one, it gives you a test suite. So it simulates this TDD. It gives you these small, easy, quick wins. Um, that's really useful in a new language. It also shows you some of the TDD patterns, which are going to be great if you're going to be on a project in, in that language. The other thing is that there is this conversation that you have with other people who are also learning the language. Or maybe it might be people who know the language well, and they're artisans, <laughs> and they care <laughs> deeply about the trade-offs and the right. beauty of the code. And they'll pull up their thesaurus and have discussions about what's the best word here and they're like, I just want to figure out how to do a loop. Stop <laughs> it. So the discussions are really valuable. And the third thing that it does, I think, very deliberately, is that there's no competition. This is not, I'm going to be the smartest person on the site. There is no smartest person on the site. Our experiences are very, very different. And so it's kind of tapping into those differences in our in our experiences and backgrounds. And like some people have had jobs where <laughs> discovering race conditions is a very important thing, except most people have maybe done Ruby where race conditions are probably not a big deal. Yeah, and like there is the site has no like karma rating or anything like yeah, that, right? So like you don't you don't know that like the person giving you this feedback is unless you recognize the name or something is yeah. like a Rails core team member. Right. And you know, <laughs> you like but it puts you on equal footing with them where you could be like, okay, well that's interesting feedback, but you know, I, I like, like this other version. way. Right. <laughs> yeah. I like my version. And you don't have to feel like, well, this person has 4,000 karma. So like, <laughs> <laughs> I better not say anything. Right. I might be, I might sound dumb. So what do you think? What, what I mean, to me, for, to the outside, to me, like, as like, I don't use it frequently, but I do use it. Probably I go through like once a year, I'm like, oh, I should, let me try this. And I'll do some exercises exercises in yeah. like elixir or whatever. So what do you, what do you, like to me, it looks like it works great. So you say you have like a long list of things that you did wrong. Like, what did you do wrong? Oh my goodness. So the very first thing that I did wrong was like, I didn't know it was going to be a thing. I've built a ton of open source things and usually it's a throwaway tool and I'll use it and be super happy and then never think about it again. And then three years later, some poor schmuck will have the same problem and they'll find it and they'll be super happy. And now I have good feels. (laughs) And with exorcism, I expected, I don't know, 20, 25 people to use it. And then it hit the front page of Hacker News and Slashdot and Reddit and all of those sites that I never go to and I had hundreds and then thousands of people using it and it I didn't know what to expect mm-hmm. and the, the the mistake that I made was I didn't have a good idea about what exorcism was what's important about it and so I got so super flattered people are like they like my project <laughs> someone loves me (laughs) and then people would come and they would contribute pull requests and they'd have a million ideas and feature requests and I was like yes thank you merge and I merged everything for the first few months and it was a disaster (laughs) just from a scope creep perspective or from a quality perspective or both everything okay 
Yeah, it was like, I didn't know what exorcism was, and now I have a thousand people making all the decisions for me. Right. Yeah, right. it was not good. And that is, I think that is the hard, one of the harder things about being a maintainer is like you want, like I have a lot of projects also that have like one star on yeah, GitHub, totally. right? And you're like, oh, okay. It's a great and then like, though. right, you're like, <laughs> oh, I wish people thing. would find this and then they find something else. Yeah. And then you start to get pull requests and you're like, this is great. People are using it. Like, look, people are installing this. And then the first pull request comes along where you're like, that I didn't want you to use it like that. Yeah. You know, you're like, <laughs> you're like how, how do I balance this like feeling in my head of I'm so grateful that people are using it and care enough to like contribute back with, but I also care about the future direction. Yeah. And I also don't want to look like a jerk. Yeah. Right. Well, and, and it's difficult because especially early on, you don't want to discourage people from contributing, mm. um, both from using the tool, but also from contributing because having a pull request closed is a very discouraging feeling. It's really, really hard. And some people do it really well. They're like, this is a great idea and you should go build it as a standalone thing. I think people would like it. It doesn't quite fit in with the vision that we have. Like, that's a good nice kind way to close a pull request or this is an interesting feature i'm not quite sure how to implement it without confusing people who are using the site and i'd like to do more exploration around it could we go have a conversation like there there are so many ways i read a blog post on github not too long ago about how to kindly close pull requests like you should close pull requests there are certain pull requests that you absolutely should close rather than merge and here are some of the ways in which you can do that that was incredibly useful yeah i mean i think uh one of the things that people tend to miss is especially if you're adding a new feature to an open source library um ultimately a pull request is a elevator pitch for uh uh, why why this feature should exist yeah and, or to put it another way, why you should maintain the, the code that they wrote until the end of time. Yes. Um, yeah. the open source is free as in, what did they say? Free as in beer, free as in speech, free as in puppy. <laughs> I've never heard, I never heard the free as in puppy. That's oh good. My God. That's, that's an excellent um, uh, metaphor. <laughs> yeah, so it is an elevator pitch. And you can reject it, or you can ask for more tweaks and of course if they never come back you can close it <laughs> right yeah i that is one of my favorite games <laughs> i was talking to caleb about some pull requests on scenic which is one of the libraries caleb and i maintain together and uh, you know like it doesn't have a lot of issues or pull requests because mm-hmm. it's it's pretty well used but it's also has a small enough scope that it yeah. kind of just does what it's supposed to do but we had these pull requests that were sitting out there for a little while and i just kind of didn't feel like dealing with them and i was like there's a low enough number that i feel okay just being like i'm not going to deal with this yeah. and then like uh, two months go by i commented on it and i was like um is this still a problem like one of those types of <laughs> yeah. things and then like three days later close yeah <laughs> reopen if it's still a problem i'm it's actually like, thinking of putting something in my readme about like what are the slas if i don't hear back within this amount of time like if i've asked for a change and i don't hear back within this amount of time i will close it that way it will be clear up front and i'll just be saying well per the policies which are in the readme yeah um we we have a bot that does it on rails and it's been really helpful if if, we don't do it for pull requests although i think we should um but it's if an issue has had no comments on it for three months then the bot will um put a tag on it and then uh, basically say, hey, this issue doesn't uh, uh, is becoming stale. If mm-hmm. Please verify that it still exists on master. And then if nobody comments for another month, it gets closed and people then can just comment yeah. to keep it alive. That's but a good policy. Annoying one, though, is when the bot, because uh, 
it's it, it will remove the tag as soon as anybody comments. And so when somebody goes and comments on one of these with, yeah, no, this issue seems like it could be closed, <laughs> which then causes it to have to go manually be closed. <laughs> one of the tricky ones that, that hap- happen on Rails is when somebody will submit a, a feature or a bug fix and there'll be a change that's like, I don't really like the change, mm. but I'm not so opposed to it that I want to outright reject it. And so I'm like, I'll just leave this open and somebody else will uh, have a stronger opinion. And then, and then eight nobody months does. later, it's still there. I hate that. I have, uh, I make, I still make this mistake. And it's again, I'm so afraid of hurting people's feelings. Mm. This is often, and with exorcism, it's like people who have maybe not been programming for more than a few months. It's their first ever contribution to open source and I want them to have a good experience and so for the most part I try to like say that if you can even get started I will help you be successful and then every once in a while it's something that I don't really care strongly about and I don't hate it enough to not take it and I've started to think about what if I did the thing that they talk about where you put um, a scale from 1 to 10 10 is awesome nine is pretty damn good anything with a 10 or a nine is like well yeah obviously then anything like six or below is like well no Mm -hmm. what do you do with seven and eight (laughs) it's a hard question and one person says well seven and eight are clear no's if it's not a nine or a ten it's a no like that's kind of brilliant (laughs) (laughs) i might try that yeah i had a phase for a while where i just got really 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 picky and I had somebody come up to me at a conference once and say, hey, I don't know if you remember me. You've closed 15 of my pull requests. <laughs> um, and I did remember him, and I felt really bad. Um, but now now I, what I've been trying to do is, uh, at the very least, take a minute or two and look at their GitHub profile yeah. and try and identify if it, if it is just somebody who uh, like familiar enough with the process that mm-hmm. it happens, okay, yeah. or if it's somebody who will get really, really discouraged by the interaction. Yeah. There's, like, my strategy for that is, like, if I sense that this is important to somebody, I will look through the pull request and be like, is there something in here that yes. I can include? Yeah. Right. Is there something I can say, well, redline this, redline this, but this is good. Yeah. Like, you could submit this as another pull request, or you could edit it and just leave it at this, and I'll merge it. Or even, like, if it's been hanging out for a long time, I can be like, well, I like 60% of this. I'll, uh-huh. just, I'll just edit it myself, and I'll right. leave the commit as them. I've done that. And yeah. be like, thanks. So we merged most of this as yeah. you know this commit over here. This shot, yeah. And the other thing I do as now as somebody who has experience maintaining projects is when I open pull requests other places that I don't feel like, like I feel myself as like this might be a borderline feature mm-hmm. for this project. I will give them permission to close it. I'll I, be like, I'll be like, if this is not what you want, it's totally fine. Yeah. But it's helping me, so I thought I'd throw it out there. I do that yeah. as well. <laughs> I'm very upfront with I, you. Will not hurt my feelings. Right. Right. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely, uh, you can tell when a, when somebody who is very familiar, like who has their own open source projects, is submitting a pull request. Yeah. It's always nice. You recognize the signs. You have a really good commit message. Yep. It'll say closes num- issue number so that auto- <laughs> you don't have to remember to go close. I have so many open issues and people will come in. I love it when people come in and they help you triage the thing. They'll go and check. They'll see that there's like a, a link to a merged pull request and they'll go and look at the merged pull request and they'll read through the issues and the comments and they'll look at the code and they'll say, this is fixed by that one. This can be closed. I'm like, you just <laughs> saved my day. <laughs> Saves you 15 minutes. Yep. And they did it three times. Yeah. Well, and that's what, and that's what it comes down to, right? Because every, every pull request is going to take some amount of time from the maintainers. And mm-hmm. especially if, if it is the case where um, it's, a, it's a seven or an eight 
but you want to try and help them mm-hmm. um, through it. Like that's going to take a lot, of, a lot of additional time. Yeah. One of the things that I, I try to point out to people is that, especially if you aren't planning on repeated contributions to a product mm-hmm. or a project, you're, I think it takes about three pull requests before you're at the point where your pull request is likely to be taking uh, less time to review Mm -hmm. than it would have just for the person reviewing to affix themselves. I'm not saying that as like don't open pull requests, but in that uh, I don't think people realize how much uh, it can actually take if it's not immediately a 9 or a 10. Mm -hmm. That time adds up a lot. I think that a lot of people who don't have their own open source projects that have gotten some, you know, contributions and attention and use are aware of how many how many early and late hours go into the chore of doing the thing. People are like, open source, it's awesome. And you're like, well, (laughs) it's nice. Many days I love it. And some days it's just a real pain in the ass. Right. Well, and open source and open source uh, users are the worst are the worst clients. What do you mean? What do you mean? They're not entitled at all. (laughs) Uh, it's like, um, you know, right, no normal product. You have a, you release a bug, and uh, it, depending on how critical it is, maybe it gets fixed pretty quickly. Uh-huh. But uh, even for the most critical bugs, a couple of days is pretty reasonable. Yeah. But, like, uh, if Rails releases an, a, new, a new beta and our spec hasn't already released a version compatible with it, the world is ending for everybody. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I have to say, there are so many wonderful people around yes. in open source and people that are not necessarily at the conferences or visible or writing blog posts. They just come in and quietly fix the things and contribute and ask good questions and help triage issues or help do support or it's just amazing. I have someone I didn't know came in and basically implemented every single exercise that we have in F sharp. Wow. And now F sharp is probably the best supported language on exorcism you should go to f sharp it's pretty cool that's awesome and i didn't know this person i never also they don't have english as a first language but they're fixing all my typos it's pretty cool (laughs) (laughs) so you mentioned like when you first announced exorcism you expected like 25 people to use it right yes and now i imagine it's thousands of people using it i have a hundred thousand people in my it's over a hundred thousand in my database right however The usability of the site was so bad for so long that most of those people have not actually done anything. I think they just created the account logged in Hmm. so that in the hopes that maybe if you log in, it'll explain what exorcism is. (laughs) (laughs) So there are like 15,000 users who actually use the site. That's still a lot. So like that's more than 25. Yes. So like my question is like you, not only is this an open source project, an open source like library, it's also a product. So, like, yeah. how do you manage, like, supporting that many users has an actual cost, like a dollar sign cost? Yes. How do you manage that part? Like, do uh, you have sponsorship? Out of pocket, mostly. Wow. There are some sponsors, but they are sponsors in the sense that Bugsnag, thank you, Bugsnag, um, lets me use their product for free. So I don't pay for Bugsnag. Mm-hmm. Rackspace gives me servers, like, they have an open source. If you have an open source project, you can go ask Rackspace to have their open source thing. They will give you resources for free. And every year you have to go ask them again. It's great, but you like it's not a thing that you may or may not get it. Like they're they're very generous. Now I don't actually know how to do ops, <laughs> so I only use uh, Rackspace for a couple of like small things that are running on the side. Most of the stuff I put on Heroku, mm-hmm. and um, I pay for what I use on Heroku. Wow, 
thank you. <laughs> oh, are you at Heroku? No, I'm just saying thank you for paying for it. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, eventually I'll figure out, like, I'm not a marketer. I don't know how to do, like, go ask for sponsorship. I actually realized that I could probably do that, but they would ask for numbers, and I'd have to go figure out how to get the numbers that they're interested in. Like, how many people are solving problems in Ruby? I don't know. Mm-hmm. But right. I, I might I might do that. Someone said I should start a newsletter. And for like a year and a half, I was like, I have nothing to say. Why would I, why, why would I have a <laughs> newsletter? And then someone was like, there's stuff going on on exorcism all the time. Just talk about that. And so now I have behind the scenes yeah. <laughs> and it's fun. Yeah. I think I saw that the last one had the F sharp stuff in it. Exactly. Right? Yep, I saw yeah. that. And like as somebody who hasn't used, I said, I come along like once a year and I get yep. back into it for a little bit. Like it's cool to get an update. That's like, oh, yeah, well, that's a reason to go back. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Check that out. Yeah. So. so I have I have a few sponsorships, but it's all mostly like just the the ability to use their service without paying for it. So what got you? Uh, what what was the motivation for Exorcism? There were so it was a technical fix. It was a workflow problem. Okay. It was definitely not I'm going to save the world and help new people learn programming. Though I love the I, like in retrospect, I love that it helps people learn programming to a degree that many of them actually do go out and are more confident when they start working as programmers for the first time or like I know three languages but now they have this closure project at work and I have to learn that <laughs> yeah. um, the motivation there there are kind of two paths into this in 2006 I started um, doing code reviews via email on little problems on Java Ranch they have something called the cattle drive and it's like these little trivial exercises and it's just an ex- it's just a readme like there's no test suite or anything So I did code reviews in Java um, by email on a day-to-day basis, and I did that for about eight years. And the reason I thought there would be 25 people using Exorcism is that there were always like two or three or maybe four people doing the exercises at any one time, right? Mm -hmm. There are a handful. The experience was fundamental to how I write software. Despite the fact that the exercises were incredibly trivial, what I learned from looking at someone's 10 lines of code and making observations about it, not about software design in general or about, you know, solid principles or anything, but saying that, you know, you have a loop and you're doing the same computation a hundred times. Maybe you could do it fewer times. Like, how would you do that? And so all of these tiny, tiny things add up and the process of giving feedback taught me more than doing any number of exercises. And so I had this in the back of my experience, sort of just, you know, they call, call it a slow hunch, something that you come back to over and over again, but it's not really an active part of your life, except those emails that you answer every day. And then I was help, helping mentor some students who were career switchers. They were you know, snowboard instructors, or they baked cookies at the local Whole Foods, and they wanted to become programmers. And the person who was directing the program said, we need, and this is Turing.io, by the way, so that we need warm-up exercises for the students. We need people to come in and have a way to, like, warm up their brain, and a a nice small win in the morning just makes everyone's day uh, better. And so I was like, okay, I'll take that on started making readmes and within a few weeks it was like they weren't being successful with this i was not having the nice win in the morning type mm. experience for them 
And then besides the instructors of the program, they would then, after we did the warm-up, they would show how they would solve it. And the, the instructors were not doing good practices, right? They were writing little hacks to solve the trivial problems. And I was like, this is wrong. Right. Um, and so I started writing test suites to guide first so that the students could more easily be successful and also so that the instructors would do TDD <laughs> um, like they're supposed to teach good practices. And so we did this and it was manual every morning, 8.45, I'd push up a new thing on GitHub and they'd pull it down. And after about five months of this, I was kind of getting fed up with the whole I have to every morning at 8.45 push up a new exercise. There were a couple of other problems with it. The students often didn't finish. Like now they were being more successful, but if they were unable to finish in the time allotted, they didn't like pull it up after, after school or on the weekend and go through it. They didn't also bring it to their mentor and say, hey, could we look at this together? And so we were missing enormous opportunities to give crucial feedback about simplicity and readability and good practices like on a day-to-day -day basis. And so exorcism was a technical fix. It was going to fix the workflow problem of like 8.45 a.m. every day. Can't go traveling to speak at conferences when you have to push up warm-up exercises <laughs> at 8.45 a.m. Right. Besides, there are time zone issues. Um, and the second thing was that I wanted people to finish a problem before they moved on to the next one. And then the third problem was I want them to get feedback. Mm -hmm. Because I was seeing after five, six months of training, like people were making fundamental mistakes about how they name simple things or how they do loops. Or and I was like, we could, we could catch this way, way earlier. And so I figured I'd fix that as a workflow problem, spent a week writing a prototype and then launched it. And of course, open source, because I mean, that's how you get free. I mean, I don't pay for my GitHub. Mm -hmm. Sorry, GitHub. Right. <laughs> um, so it's kind of, I put a license on it and everyone can use it. And besides, who cares, right? right. Uh, nobody's going to see it. <laughs> <laughs> Famous last words. Yeah. So that, it was really just this technical fix around the warm-up issues. However, I had all of those years of doing, and I was still doing the email feedback by, the, by that time, still doing it every, more or less every day, but I had that experience of like the value, the deep value of giving feedback, how profoundly it actually changes the way that people write their code at their day job. Mm -hmm. like it made real huge, noticeable differences to the simplicity, the level of simplicity in people's code. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and they and they definitely still use it every day there. <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs> the you mentioned like part of what you noticed was that like giving feedback and getting feedback was really like a key part to this, right? Yes. So during last year, I gave a talk at RailsConf about doing code reviews. Yeah. And people would ask like people who were beginners and were not working on teams and couldn't yeah. like take this back to a team and be yeah. like, oh, I want to implement like now I know how to give kind, constructive feedback. Right. Thank you Instead for that, of, by the way. Well, thank you. Um, but they but like so one of the things I told them was I was like, go do exorcism, go do code reviews on exorcism. Right. Oh, thank um, you. And like also. because that will give you in practice these techniques there. Yeah. You know, they're small enough that you can understand the whole thing in mm -hmm. five minutes. And if you don't, that's a feedback. great conversation right. starter. Just ask a question. It's like, how does the thing on line 13 right. work? I right. never saw that. And the key being you don't have to like as the reviewer you don't have to be the person with the answers you can be mm -hmm. the person with like oh great interesting question. i had never i had never noticed that but i had never knew you could call this method or yeah. whatever the case may be right yeah. and people really were like oh okay cool so yeah. hopefully that worked out for them but it's a good place to like get started doing 
good code review practices as a reviewer as yeah. well as like taking the feedback. So. Yeah, which I actually think is the important part of exorcism. Exorcism is great. You know, it's it's really great to be able to do a nice easy win, simple problem, feel creative or whatever. But the thing and 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 you get better at programming from doing that. But the thing that actually impacts your c- career as a programmer is the ability to communicate with other programmers in a kind, constructive way. And doing code reviews is something that's going to happen all the time. It should happen all the time. <laughs> well, that's what sets ex- exorcism apart, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, compared to some, I mean, because the code review, I think, was what turned it into something that like exploded in popularity as yeah. opposed to just another project oiler with less pedantic like problems. Kata type stuff, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. less math. Yeah, less math. <laughs> 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 Yeah, it could have easily just been more katas, which is is fun. It, like I love a good kata. Yeah. But um I do think that it's the it's the conversation piece and that's the piece that I'm struggling with still. I haven't solved how do you let people be motivated like to understand that giving a good code review is good practice. Right. Like most people don't. And so now there's we have 30 almost 30 languages. And most people are not getting good feedback or any feedback at all. Mm. And that's a real problem. I have to, that's the yeah. thing that I have to figure out. If exorcism is going to survive, that's the problem I have to solve. Get more people involved giving the feedback? Is that what mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and also, like, how, how can I do the user experience in such a way that people are encouraged to even try so that they can have that feeling of, I just learned something amazing by having a conversation with another human. Because right. if they do, it's addictive. Yeah. It's a tough problem. It is a tough problem. <laughs> the tough problems are not technical in this. In, for my project, I do have some cool technical problems, but but actually, I, I used technology to solve the feedback thing because I was like, I've done a thousand, actually, probably four or five thousand code reviews on exorcism. I've seen a lot of the same things all over and over again. That's what we can use static analysis for. <laughs> so I have a little feedback robot that basically gives my feedback um, by analyzing the code and then saying, oh, I recognize this and having a really friendly, you mm-hmm. know, look at this, think about this. But it's only like it, there's a tiny bit of it in Ruby and there's a lot of it in Go. And I would love to like figure out how to do it for all of the languages well. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. I still think it's inter- more the, the harder problem and more interesting problem is trying to get people yes. to do that right because yes. that's that's one of the more important skills you can learn as well is giving the feedback yeah and that you don't have to be like even if you are the person who just did the like the f- first exercise i think a lot is like the high bob one right or something like yeah, that it, it varies now we have hello world in a lot of English. okay so like so <laughs> even if you just did that one right yeah. like looking at this and being like wow this looks really interesting or like can you explain what you did here yeah. like i don't understand yeah. that like that's like that's a code review you don't have to be it doesn't just have to be like the thumbs up. This looks ever. great. Oh, and thumbs up looks great is terrible right. <laughs> feedback. I hate that feedback. Yeah. It's like good job. Yeah, how did I do a good job? What was good about it? Can you give specifics? Because how am I going to go do another piece of code and be able to replicate my success? You haven't told me anything about what was good about it. Right. You have to you have to move beyond being like the grader into being like the let's have a conversation. Yeah. Right? and that's it's hard. It's hard. Like a lot of companies we work with, it's like they have these processes that are built around like code review is this approval process and I'm like that's like I understand what you're doing and why you're doing that because you want to make sure like every change goes through code review and stuff but yeah. it just puts it in the wrong light of like oh, is my change going to pass code review rather than yeah. like here's some code let's discuss it yeah right. <laughs> I still miss a ton of stuff in code review yeah like I'll, it'll be well, the longer it is, the more lines of code, the more likely I am to miss everything. If it's a really <laughs> short code review, you might get more comments than there are lines of code. 
but it's a t- tough, tough, tough problem. Yep, sure is. I really enjoyed. Uh, you have you had a talk that you gave. I don't remember how many years ago it was, but on the solution to high bob, where they just special. So, um, for people who aren't familiar with it, high bob is uh, an exercise early on where you have a class called Bob that needs to respond uh, to various phrases um, based on like, is it all uppercase? Uh, is it empty? And things like that. And it adds more and more and more edge cases to sort of. Uh, and there is a solution to it where every single test case was just in a giant case statement. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, don't know, I just thought that was a, it was it was fascinating to, to like pick that apart in the process behind it. Yeah, I, there's a whole talk in every all the things you can learn from a trivial thing that's basically like Bob is not very smart can respond four types of things based on what comes in, and the code is really really simple. And if you pick it apart. And it's, again, the thing of actually looking at the code that's there, not saying, well, ideally, this should be designed in this way. It's no saying that, well, you have a lot of cases here. Are there any similarities? Could you make a rule? Right. And then having them try one thing at a time, and then every single time they make a change, coming back and asking a new question about the code that they actually have. And there's a 30-minute talk in that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, it is interesting, though, because one of the things that I've always felt was a little, just a little bit missing from some of the exercises is that all of the exercises are writing new code from scratch. Yes. We have one refactoring exercise in Go. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> you should do Go. It can, you have to do 70 other exercises first. Sorry. <laughs> is, is, is this your way of trying to get me to, to abandon uh, Rust, Rust and, come, and come to, and come no, to the Go? I goal. actually don't have like a personal investment in programming languages. I like different languages and I use them, but I basically just solved the problem that Go is great. Like I needed Go for exorcism. Right. That's how I got into Go is I started with just Ruby on exorcism. Right. So I had a Ruby gem that you download or you install and that's how you talk. That's the command line client that you use to talk to the website. And then we started getting things like Haskell and Clojure. And I was like, yeah, so to do Haskell on exorcism, you first install Ruby. Wait a second. First you install, you know, the Ruby manager. Right. <laughs> then you install Ruby. Then you say gem install, whatever bad idea right terrible and don't terrible. switch your ruby version because then you won't be able to run it again <laughs> right yeah oh yeah because if you don't do ruby on a right. regular basis how would you know that right, right. actually mike gayhart from pivotal labs in boulder wrote the first like version of the command line client in go and it was so nice like now we have a binary you download it you put it in your path you're done unless you're a newbie in which case it's like what's a path? <laughs> it's like, I'm sorry. There's going to be a lot of jargon. It's going to hurt a little bit, yeah. but you know, you're going to be fine. Now, now we just need GUI clients. Don't even start. <laughs> Drag and drop installer. Don't. Even. I want one for Windows. Yeah. I don't care so much for Linux. Linux, they're going to be fine. Right. right. Mac OS, I have it in Homebrew. They're going to be fine. Right. Windows, I don't know enough about Windows and I want a Windows installer because Seriously, getting stuff into your path in Windows is not trivial. Right. Apparently. Yeah. I used to write Windows installers. You did. I have to crack it open again. See, there's this great open source project. <laughs> you should contribute to open source. I just need a Windows laptop. Sean, you're going to uh, have to hook me up with a Windows laptop. I'm sure I can find a sponsor for this. <laughs> uh, you know, one of the, one of the things that, that is, was always baffling to me about paths in Windows is because um, we have separate paths on Unix machines for executables and uh, libraries, right? Mm-hmm. There's, uh, what is it, LD load path or something mm-hmm. like that? Yep. Same thing. But it, it, it's all just the one 
path in Windows, and there's not like a canonical place for new libraries to go. So like your path just gets super long. <laughs> well, and if you're yeah, because if you're compiling stuff, for example, that needs to link against Postgres. Um, <laughs> Basically, you have to have like C program files, Postgres, uh, some subdirectory added to your path, and then if you're dynamically linking it instead of statically linking it, that has to be in the user's path at runtime. It's like, who thought this was a good? And, that, and that's why that's why Windows always needs installers because it has to set all this up. Yeah, when I was working at Splice, we had a team writing the Windows client and the installer, and then the Mac client and the installer, and it was like this whole other world. I had never. Hmm. I don't know. I've just been writing tools that you put on your window on your Linux or whatever Mac right. thing, and you run it, and it's just not it's not familiar territory. Yeah. All right. Do you have a call to action or anything you want to? Yes, we have so many low hanging fruit on exorcism. Um, I deliberately have been working with the other contributors to be able to identify small easy wins like we're trying to not solve all the simple problems because we know like we can we could probably do it really quickly because we know where all the crazy code lives mm. but we're trying to identify patches that would be a great first pull request and so if you're feeling intimidated by open source i make a great effort to not be unkind <laughs> i also make a great effort to help you be successful with your first pull request because i think that's super important and really something to celebrate and I would love to help people be successful contributing to open source. Cool. All right. People should check that out. The website is exorcism.io. The GitHub repository is github.com slash. Exorcism slash exorcism.io. And then there's one repository for each language so that you don't have to know all the big unwieldy weirdness that goes on to make exorcism so. So if you're interested in implementing exercises in a specific language, that's actually super easy very very low barrier to entry on that i know we have some listeners who are very into crystal right now so you Yay. listening who's into crystal you should go help them implement uh crystal exercises get so to that, 30 get languages that number to 30. yeah <laughs> also like we have things like groovy has enough exercises to actually launch but nobody has cared lately so it's not launched but if you care come help us launch it we'll get to All 31 right. Cool. Nice. Can we get to 32? Two times two times two times oh, two times two. I see what two. you're doing there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta get right. to the power two. <laughs> nice round number. All right. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 65. As always, ratings and reviews on iTunes or Google Play are much appreciated. Google Play. Wow. Yeah, no, I'm, go I'm going full <laughs> Android now. Okay. If you have any feedback on this episode or any of our other episodes, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on the website. Thanks for listening to the bike shit, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>